Franklin Graham crusade. He is the son of the... Thanks, Janelle. Thank you. It's my wife, Janelle. Hello. Yeah. Um, but we, my, my mother-in-law, Cheryl, and I, we went to the Franklin Graham crusade. He's the son of the late um, amazing evangelist, Billy Graham. And during worship at that crusade, I would say it was the best worship I've ever been in. It was just such a celebration. All the, everyone was just jumping up and down, and I was going, ah, yeah, that's right. The gospel is good news, and you can just see it coming out of everyone. But I am sorry, Franklin, what we experienced here this morning... <laughs> That was amazing. It was just such a, such a celebration. And you, like Beck said, you can just feel the presence of God here. And yeah, so it's been such a great, great start. And, you know, worship, I was just thinking like worship, the, the music, it doesn't stop when we come into the sermon. Hey, like for myself included, because in worship, I came out of it with a sense of, wow, how great is God? And, you know, the, the sermon isn't just where I say, hey, here are the 10 things you need to go and do this week. That's where we, 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 we think about, wow, how great is God, you know? So the, if you've ever read the, uh, the first sermon Jesus ever preached, Sermon on the Mount, you'll know that he just gets straight into business. He doesn't worry about an icebreaker. He doesn't start off with a, you know, a funny story, an interesting anecdote. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Jesus and uh, you know, I was born in a manger, blah, blah, blah. He just gets straight into it by boldly declaring in eight different ways how he blesses those who trust him. And uh, these eight declarations, they're what we call the Beatitudes, which is another word for blessed. And as you know, we've been doing a series on the Beatitudes at Oasis uh, for a little while now. And I've been given the third Beatitude to have a look at today. We find it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. And I'll have to look at the screen because it's slightly different up there to how, how it is in my notes. But here it is. So God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. And the Beatitudes is an interesting one because it... it it's, such, it's written in such a beautiful way, you could mistake it for poetry, but it's not. This is Jesus, he's sitting down, and yeah, look, all the little kids, they would come to him and they would play, play with him from time to time. And the way he's depicted in art, you could mistake him for being, you know, just this really tame and gentle man that has no strength and power. But these are bold declarations about the kingdom of God. And they mean a couple of things. The first thing that, that this verse means is it's, it's telling us how God blesses the humble here on earth in the present circumstances. But it points to this even more ginormous promise that at the end of everything, when everything is said and done, that God will take earth as it is right now, he'll take heaven as it is right now, and he'll join them together, end that separation, and he will make one new thing called the new heaven and the new earth. And in the past, God made this promise that was only available to a select group of people, the Jewish people. And he said, listen, if you bless, if you, if you, you know, humble yourself and if you will trust me, then I will give you a piece of land. If you trust me, you will inherit the land. But now he is saying, I am ushering in a new era where there is bigger promises, there are better blessings, the, and they are not just applicable to a select group of people. They are available to anyone and everyone. You don't have to be Jewish to inherit this promise. All you have to do is just have a heart that is surrendered to Jesus. And if you do, I will just give you a piece of land, I'll give you the whole world. That's kind of what he's talking about. He's talking about the new heaven and new earth. And this is just one beatitude. So they really are like the executive summary of a report or like the, 
the trailer to a movie, they give you a sense of everything that is going to come. And it's really quite amazing, just the third beatitude. But he does, you know, introduce a bit of tension, throws a spanner into the works, because then in Matthew 16, after he's finished talking here in, in Matthew 5 about the blessings of humility, then he introduces a new concept where he starts talking about the costs of humility. And we begin to get this idea that, that if we will humble ourselves to God, he will bless us far more than we can ever imagine. Wonderful, amazing blessings. But also, we start to get this idea that it might also cost us more than we can imagine as well. And in Matthew 6, 16, it says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And deny means, you know, making him the first and the, and, and the number one in your life. And take up their cross and follow me. And so the title and the theme of my, my message here this morning is about the blessings and the costs of humility because according to Jesus, that's what humility involves. It's not just blessings and it's not just costs. It's blessings and costs. So we're going to explore that theme today by having a look at one man's life, John the Baptist, because his life epitomizes that. Great blessings, great costs, bigger blessings than you could ever imagine, but also far bigger costs than you can imagine as well. So John the Baptist, he was the guy that, that God chose to prepare and get ready all of the people for the arrival of Jesus. And he was a super godly guy, but really eccentric at the same time. He had crazy long beard, wild long hair. Um, he wore clothes that were made out of camel hair. And he, he lived on a diet of locusts and honey. So you can just imagine that, you know, if as this guy is baptizing you, you know, hygiene isn't really a priority for him. And so you're just like, oh, man, get me into the water. You know, so he was, he, was, he was a really eccentric guy. But God used him in such a powerful way. And he had the most brilliant, flourishing, successful career as a preacher. He was so popular. This is before the days of social media. Thousands of people would come in to the desert and travel for days on end to hear his sermons and they'd be baptized by him and they'd just leave and their lives would just be right with God, just absolutely transformed. Until one day, John's disciples run up to him in a panic and they say, John, this newer, younger, more talented guy you call Jesus, he's stealing all our clients. We're losing business. We're going down the drain because he's set up a baptism circuit over there and now everybody is going to be baptized by him. They're not coming to us anymore and they're really worried about what this sudden downturn in the market for them is going to mean. Is John going to have to lay some of them off? Like what's this going to mean? They're, they're terrified and, and just as they are looking at John, waiting for him to announce his big plan for how they're going to compete with Jesus... John does something totally unexpected, and he, he doesn't announce a big plan to compete with Jesus. He just says to his disciples, he says, guys, it's time that I retire. And they are absolutely gobsmacked. He doesn't announce a plan to compete. He announces his decision to retire, which is crazy because he's 30 years old. He's got no money. He's got no idea of what he's going to do in the future. He's got no prospects for the future. He just, in that moment, he just knows you know what, this is my time to retire. And I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Let's bring up John 3.30 on the screen if we can. Yeah, so here you go. So he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. And what he's saying here is that Jesus 
must become more and more famous and I need to get out of the way, get out of the limelight so that he in the eyes of everyone else can grow into all that he needs to become. He's saying, I need to, you know how sometimes in a really bad way, you always get like just this week a Labour candidate, they, uh, she resigned because she made some really bad comments and they always say, oh, I chose to resign because I didn't want to be a distraction from the campaign. John is pretty much saying, in it, but he's, he's retiring himself, but he's going, I don't want to be a distraction at all from Jesus. I don't want anyone to be looking at me anymore because I was just the voice. I was just the guy that came to prepare the way for him, and that was it. That was my job. So I just think, wow, that's, a, that's absolutely incredible. But, you know, before he... Oh, wait, hang on, I'm jumping ahead, guys, sorry. So there's three points I just want to kind of talk about today, I guess, and that is the joy of humility, the sorrow of humility, and the security of humility. Joy of humility, sorrow of humility, security of humility. That's what we see in this amazing example of John, how he retires. And so I'll I'll work through each of these one at a time. So let's start first with the joy of humility. So before John drops this incredible bombshell that he's retiring, that he's moving on, he says something one verse earlier in verse 29 which gives us a lot of insight into how he's feeling about his decision. Is he anxious? Is he worried? Is he happy? What we see is that he's actually over the moon. And so we'll bring it up on screen. It says this. It says, It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. Or as other translations put it, my joy is now complete, which is his way of saying, this is the greatest moment of my life. All of my dreams have come true. I couldn't be happier. I'm, I'm absolutely delighted and thrilled. But to understand why he's so happy and delighted, you need to understand the, the analogy that he uses in this same verse. It's a wedding analogy, as you probably picked up, and it's got three characters. Jesus is the groom. John is the best man. And then there's the bride. Who is the bride of Christ? The bride are all of the people that John prepared and got ready for this new personal relationship that Jesus would offer to them. And anyone who since that time has accepted that offer with Jesus is also the bride, which includes you and me if we have a personal relationship with Jesus. But isn't it interesting that John doesn't call himself the bride, he calls himself the best man. Because, you know, a groom, when he stands at the altar, the groom pledges his love and his commitment to the bride, to you and me, but John, he doesn't get that same opportunity. Isn't that interesting? Because his job, as he said, look, a transition needs to take place. I need to get out of the way so that he can become all that he needs to be. And it's not that Jesus doesn't love John or that John never makes it into heaven. It's just that a, like a, I don't know, a changing of the guard is happening here. A transition is taking place. And John, at this point in his life, at this, at this time in history, he didn't have the same opportunity as you and I do right now to know and relate to Jesus. What it means is that if we are the bride of Christ and John is just the best man, it means that we right now have the opportunity to have a greater relationship with Jesus right now than he did back then. Yet, John is still over the moon with what he did have. Isn't that interesting? 
He's so over the moon with what he did have, just to, because it's like his whole life was building to this moment, preparing the way for Jesus. And there he is at the altar, seeing Jesus begin to make his, his vows to all of us, to say, you know what, I love you, I'm going to hold you, I'm going to cherish you. He's not making them to John, he's making them to us, but John is hearing him and he's going, wow, this is incredible. And it kind of strikes me that if I can have a greater relationship with Jesus than John did, then shouldn't my joy be greater than John's joy? Or is it the case that John has more joy than I do, even though he has less than I do? And so I just was thinking about that because, you know, the, Jesus tells us that the gospel is good news. But I know for myself, even late last year, I just kind of got to this point where I was like, oh, I spend so much effort sometimes preaching the good news that I feel that it's really easy to stop enjoying it. And it's meant to be good news. Not good news as in like you've heard it once and that's it. it. It's actually the eternal good news. It never stops being good news. It's the news that just keeps on giving. You know, as you heard Beck today just share a bit of her testimony about something and you lifted because you're like, yes, God, you are good. And I just think, um, yeah, let's show that. Can we show that photo? Yeah, so here is the unveiling of a piece of art by Vincent van Gogh or Vincent van Gogh. I'm not sure how his surname is. But this is a priceless piece of art. But it was owned by this guy who banished it to his attic. His whole life he never knew what he had. He had this priceless piece of art but he didn't really know what he had, so he, he sent it up into the attic and it just stayed there. And so basically, he possessed this piece of art, but he was never blessed by it because he never really realized what he did have. And I guess that's kind of the question I want to put out there today. Do you realize what you do have in Jesus? The Bible tells us that even though we are like, what is it, <laughs> jars of clay, even though we are jars of clay, we have within us this beautiful, wonderful treasure, priceless. But yet it's so easy when the pressures and the worries of life come our way and we go through difficult seasons that we just take our eyes off what we do have and, I don't know, what do we focus on? We focus on lots of other things, but then the gospel doesn't even become news to us anymore. And at the start of this year, I read this, uh, this verse in Colossians 3.16. And it just blew me away because what I realized when I saw it was that, that this verse wasn't written to non-believers. This verse was written to mature, seasoned veterans of the faith, mature Christians, just like you and me. And it says this, it says, Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Another translation says, let the spoken word of Christ have its home within you, dwelling in your heart and mind, permeating every aspect of your being. And it's just, it just shows us that when we actually make room in our lives for the message of what Christ has done for us, that it doesn't just kind of stay in your mind. It goes into your mind and in your heart. It permeates every aspect of your soul and then it begins to work out of you because this good news, it can't help but just to work its way out of you and it just can't help but to just rise up and give you a greater sense of joy and of peace and of gratitude for what he's done. 
And so Jesus didn't come to say, I've done something for you and now you need to go and be a better, better person. The gospel, the good news, is just like this heartfelt response. And so I was just thinking that, you know, we can make room for the message of what Jesus has done for us in a couple of ways. Firstly, by actually accepting him into our life and committing to a relationship with him. But, but secondly, we can make room for the good news of what he's done for us by actually reading the Bible and meditating on Scripture, thanking him in prayer for what he's done on us, for, you know, on the cross. And I've just kind of found that even... At the work in my own work situation, that when I begin to take a problem and reference it back to the cross, it just changes how I look about it. You know, look at it. I, if I think about, oh man, this person insulted me and that really upset me, then I can read in Hebrews about how he, even though he was insulted, how he endured it and he endured the scorn of the cross. And it just begins to just lift your focus and go, wow, God, thank you. So do you realize what you have and do you enjoy what you have? It's good news and it's meant to be enjoyed. The second point is the sorrow of humility. You know, while humbling ourselves to God brings great blessings into our lives, also at the very same time, it can bring incredible sorrow into our life. More sorrow perhaps sometimes than if we hadn't have accepted him. Not long after John retires... He is arrested by King Herod. And the reason that he is arrested is because John was obedient to this mandate that God had put on his life. And he spoke out against King Herod publicly one day in front of everyone as King, uh, as King Herod's um, chariot passed by. And he pointed out the chariot and he just told everyone the immoral lifestyle that King Herod was living. This is Old Testament times kind of. And, and so King Herod, he locks him up and he puts him into jail and after six months, John just begins to languish. This guy that once said, my joy is now complete, becomes full of sorrow and doubt and fear. And one day his disciples, they come to him and they give him word of what Jesus has been doing. And it's interesting that even though John has accepted Jesus as his Lord, his disciples don't want anything to do with Jesus so when they're coming and giving him reports about what Jesus is doing, you need to understand they're not reporting, they're not reporting it as good news. It's coming across with cynicism, and it's also coming across with fear, and it's also coming across that, John, I cannot believe that this guy's out there and he's doing all this. Claiming is so powerful, but yet, look at you here. Look at what it has cost us. And so, John, maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe it's that what he hears doesn't fit what he hears about what Jesus is doing doesn't fit with his idea of what the Messiah was meant to be doing. Maybe it's that he's just thinking to himself, how can this guy be out there doing all this stuff, yet I'm stuck here? Does he care about me? Can he rescue me? Is he even powerful enough to rescue me? So what he does is he says, I want you to go and find Jesus, and I want you to ask him this question. And the question he said was, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? John was the guy... That when, because he was the cousin to Jesus, he was the guy that when his mom was pregnant and then with him and then Mary was pregnant with Jesus, that John was the, the baby that leapt in the womb because he knew that he was near the Messiah. And then John was the guy that when he saw the Messiah walking along one day, he said, there he is, the Lamb of God. But now the guy that was so confident about Jesus is full of so much doubt and it's just like this crisis of faith. And so... What happens is, 
the disciples, they end up finding Jesus, if we can bring it up on screen, thanks, Jack, in Luke, in Luke chapter 7. They end up finding him and they put this question to him and they say, are you the real deal? Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? And then Jesus, he answers them, but he doesn't answer them straight away with words. He answers with a demonstration of his power and then he answers with words. And here's what happens. It says, at that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. And these miracles that Jesus performs, they fulfill a number of prophecies that John would have known about from the book of Isaiah. And they're miracles that only the Messiah himself could do. So just just the fact that he's performed these miracles, is communicating to these guys something about his authority and who he really is. But then he begins to, uh, he begins to answer them with words. It says, then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he's saying, give him an eyewitness report of what you have seen and what you have heard today. It's funny that he's trusting guys who don't even believe in him to communicate that good news. But then he adds on one more thing right at the end. He says, and tell him that God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. So if you're wondering, well, what is, Je- what is Jesus going to do about John in prison? Here's the answer. He's saying to John, John, I'm not coming to get you. You are going to stay in that prison. And I want you to face your pending execution faithfully. Can you believe that? John, who has trusted God his whole life, and Jesus has the opportunity to rescue him from prison, but yet Jesus is saying, John, I want your trust to go to a whole new level, and I'm giving you this promise to hold on to, that if you do not turn away because of me, if you do not stumble in your final moment, I will bless you more than you can ever imagine. And the crazy thing is, it just annoys me a little bit, but we don't actually know how John receives that news. We only hear of what happens next, but we don't actually hear about that moment when the disciples come in and they share that good news. So I can only just assume that John is lifted and he is bolstered by that good news because he knew all the prophecies from Isaiah. He, he knew that those things were proof of the, of the Messiah, but Jesus gives him a very personal message. He says, say this to John, and he gives him this promise. And then the very next thing that happens is John is beheaded by the sword, which is just so difficult to come to terms with. You've, if you've read John uh, 3 or wherever this might be, is it Matthew or something like that, Luke? If you've read this, I bet you've probably skipped over it before and go, oh, yeah, that's not, that's not relevant to me because it's quite uncomfortable to think about that someone could be persecuted to the point of death for their faith. And this is so foreign to us because we don't experience this type of persecution here in this country. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen elsewhere. A recent report from the Pew Research Center says that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world right now. You know, 100,000 Christians are killed each year for their faith around the world, which is equivalent to 11 per hour, every hour, even while we've been having this church service. Just last month, there was a number of deliberate attacks on Christians. 32 were killed in a church in Nigeria. 
Can you imagine that? 20 in the Philippines, 8 in Somalia, 9 in Egypt. And it's, it's hard to foresee that kind of thing happening here. But we are seeing, I guess, you know, in Western countries anyway, there is a tightening and a restriction now on religious freedoms. We are seeing that people are beginning to get sued for sharing their faith, sued for standing up for what they believe in. And I'm not talking about this whole theme today, like with with this persecution, because I'm trying to say, hey, get ready, it could happen to you. I'm not trying to say that at all. I'm just trying to illustrate the point that, yeah, look, humility, it can bless you more than you can ever imagine, but it can cost you as well more than you could ever imagine. John, he was locked up in prison and executed for his faith, but yet his disciples who did nothing, they roamed free. So he actually suffered more because of his humility than they did. And humbling ourselves to God, I'm not trying to say that for us it could mean persecution or the point of death, but it could cost us more than we imagine. It could, be, it could just be like the sorrow of you know, trusting him for long periods of time when there's seemingly no breakthrough in sight. And you thought, man, it was just supposed to be sunshine, raindrops and lollipops. This is really hard. It could be the pain of overlooking an offense even though it just hurts you so much to forgive that person. And it could just be giving financially into church even when you've fallen on really tough times. You know, I know of people who have accepted Jesus into their life and it's resulted in their family cutting them off. It's like their lives began to get almost worse when they accepted Jesus. And So now from here, I've just got to find a way to pull this message out of this pit. Don't worry, wait, we'll, we'll try and get there, okay. I just really want you to know that Because if I get up here today and I say, hey, it's only going to be blessings, then it just sets you up for disappointment. If your expectations aren't congruent with the reality and the character of God. So here's this amazing psalm. It says here, Psalm 121, 7 to 8. It says, the Lord will guard you from all evil. He will preserve your soul. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Just let me have a drink. Now, what he's promising here is the eternal security of our soul. He's promising that even if trouble or evil comes our way, and even if it might touch us, he's saying that he'll actually stop it from getting within us and corrupting and staining our soul. He's showing us that that nothing can steal or snatch us from his hand, no sickness, no circumstance, not even physical death itself. We were singing some really cool lyrics today in that uh, Christ Alone song. And what is it? Here we go. This is pretty much what it's saying. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. He's talking about, he's talking about a protection that transcends just the physical. He's talking about I will protect the most important part of you, your soul. And he promises that if we, if we let him, he will protect and preserve it both now and forever. The only thing that can change our salvation is if we willingly, deliberately, knowingly give it away. The devil cannot pickpocket our salvation. It's something that we knowingly, deliberately, willingly give away. Something that illustrates this, um, this verse as well is if we can show that quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, all the waters in the ocean cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside, nor can all the trouble in the world harm us 
unless it gets within us. So the protection that, that God is saying to us, even if we will humble ourselves to him, is, look, the sword might touch your neck. The difficulties might come to you, but I will actually protect your soul and stop, it, stop that greed from getting in, that lust from getting in, that jealousy from getting in. That's what he's talking about. So we can still go through this situation where it really beats down on us, but it doesn't get in. And only someone who is powerful can give you that kind of promise. So the sword, it, it, it takes John physically. It takes his head, but it doesn't actually steal his salvation his life ends in one way but then in another way it only really begins and best quote again i'll show another one by billy graham i love this one it's so cool someday you will read or hear that billy graham is dead but don't believe a word of it i shall be more alive than i am now i will have just changed the dress i will have gone into the presence of god and that is what this promise to us is and so john he just changes address. And then after he is executed for his faith, God has protected his soul. He has preserved the most important part of him. The sword takes his head, but it doesn't steal his salvation. He just changes address and he walks into heaven. And then once more, John's joy is complete. Except this time, his joy is greater than our joy because now he has a greater relationship than we have and can you see that, yeah, look, did Jesus rescue him from prison or not? Because in one way, he, he, you know, he was never rescued from prison, but now he's gone from prison to heaven. God has rescued his soul. And I just imagine that at that moment when, when John walks into heaven, that he just kind of has this moment where he goes, ah, Jesus did keep that final promise that he made to me. Remember that one where he said, and tell John, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. You know, at the height of his sorrow, he never turned away. And now look at where he is. And that's the, the promise that is available to us, that even, even in the difficult situations of our life, that God has got us in his hand. And I think that's what, for me, gives me the courage to keep trusting him in every situation because I know that even if I might lose in this situation or even if it might cost me in that situation, both now and forever, I am safe. I am in his hand. And, you know, if you are a Christian today and you're just, like, overwhelmed by the pressures of life and you just underwhelmed by the goodness of the gospel then you know, I just want to encourage you today to just make more room for the good news of what he's done in your life read about what he's done for you in scripture thank God for what he's done for you in prayer and I believe just what Beck mentioned before like you heard her sorrow but then you also heard her joy when she reached out to God in prayer it was like something happened in her soul and if you're struggling with the cost of humility right now, if you just feel like you're just time or you're just like, man, there is no breakthrough in sight. This is just harder than I ever thought it would, was going to be. Then do what John did. Tell Jesus about your sorrow and your doubt and your fear. And also I just felt to say as well, like if you're really struggling, that, that maybe just like Jesus sent the disciples to John to tell him that, 
that promise and that blessing that maybe Jesus has sent me today to say to you that God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. Keep trusting him even in the difficult situation and in the difficult season of your life. And finally, do you know Jesus? Are you here today but you don't actually have a relationship with him? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Saviour? And, you know, it just strikes me that, that this guy, John, he was once, in my eyes, maybe a, a superhero. He was just like, wow, he's so strong. But then the moment that he begins to doubt, he instantly becomes human, doesn't he? And we see him waver in his commitment to Jesus and question it. But get this, Jesus never wavered in his commitment to you. And when he was on the cross and his arms are outstretched and he's being crucified, that is his pledge and that is his vow to you to hold you and to cherish you in this life and the next. And if it sounds like good news, it's because it is. But the difference is it's not too good to be true. It is true. And I just wanted to say today that if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, well, just picture him. He's just, he is at the altar. He's looking at you. He's made his vows. He's made his pledge. And all he wants you to do is just to, just to accept him into your life and just to make your pledge back. And so I just want to ask everyone, if you wouldn't mind, just if you would bow your heads and close your eyes in prayer. And Father, I just want to thank you for the gift of your Son. And I just want to thank you that, the, that is good news, eternally good news. And I just want to thank you, Lord, for the, the joy and the wonderful uh, relationship that we can have with Jesus right now. And while everyone's heads are bowed, if you don't know Jesus, then I'd just like, you to, I'd just like to invite you to take that step this morning right now by just lifting up your hand and saying yes to Jesus. So if you're here and you don't actually have a relationship with Jesus, you can just take that step right now by just putting up your hand and this will just be a moment between you, me and God.